0: Hello, and welcome to Critical Line and My name's Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the biggest issues that has been debated in the context of media reportage in Australia of late is how the media uh, reports extremist movements. The debate has ranged from a range of propositions, which is don't report anything at all to... Uh, platform people from social media to report particular events with a particular balance. And that's left a lot of people confused. Um, some, some of the older gener- some older generation reporters will report but not the way in which not the way in which extremists would like them to. but there's also younger generation journos who would argue that you do not platform extremists in any way, shape or form. Now, someone who has experience in this space and whose view is particularly relevant um, is uh, Jeff Schopp, uh, the former leader of the National Socialist Movement in the United States, been now the, the founding director of Beyond Barriers, an organization that engages in uh, helping people pull back from a life of extremism. Uh, Jeff joined me the other day. This is podcast number two, um, and we're looking specifically at public engagement and media engagement uh, and how people should uh, look at reporting what happens on the extremist side. Jeff, thanks for joining me the second time.
1: Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure.
0: Now. Now, look. Let's turn the clock back a bit in this conversation. Um, when you first became a member of the NSM, um, there would have been a vibe or an attitude towards the media. So, what was the? How was the media viewed when you first joined the NSM? What was the? What was the vibe about it?
1: Well, as far as the being involved in back in those days with the extreme far right, um, the media was not looked upon in a friendly way. Um, the term, for lack of a better better word, that term that was often used in the far right movement back then was, it was uh, monikered the, the name Jews media, basically. So in the belief of the extreme far right, the Jews... <clears throat> control the, the world's media and and run that so the idea of the movement of the far right movement was to try to manipulate and utilize or use the media uh, to our advantage and one of the things back then that I that I used to say when I was involved in this stuff was that the the relationship between the media and the movement was that of, uh, and I don't even know if we can say this on the air, but um, it was like a pimp in a in a prostitute, basically, and uh, that both were using one another. So um, that's that's basically the the view on it.
0: Um. So the attitude towards the media was essentially. Aligned with the ideology of uh Zionist-occupied government, Jewish dominance, and that kind of thing?
1: Yes, yeah, it was the media was considered like, like the enemy, but um it was a necessary evil in, in some ways. Um, from that perspective, was that uh, we knew if uh we did provocative things or or things of that nature, provocative rallies, provocative uh, demonstrations, passing out leaflets that were getting on the news or or things like that, that we would bring media coverage. And of course the media coverage wasn't good. The media never sang the praises of the National Socialist Movement or similar groups. But um, our philosophy on that was that anytime we're able to make the news or get the organization in the news, Every single time it resulted in new recruits joining, that there was uh, from the and you have to put yourself in the mindset of the extremist. And the mindset of the extremist as long as they're putting out something, as long as they're talking about the organization on the news, um it's an opportunity to recruit, and it happened every time. um in in different. Situations where we did demonstrations and there was little or no media coverage, it also translated in little to no recruits in those in those specific uh, instances uh, going back. So uh, there's a lot to be learned. A lot can be learned from this. And, and as far as manipulating the media or getting them to cover different events that we were doing, that goes back historically. At least in America, here it goes back historically excuse me, historically, to Commander George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the founder of the American Nazi Party. And he had said um, that with the swastika, they would break through the media blackout in the United States, like a shock and awe type of thing. So by shocking the public and shocking the media, it brought attention to the National Socialist Movement, or back back in those days, the American Nazi Party. Um, and that was, that was the that's the gist of it
0: what was your first interaction with the media back in the back when you first began uh, what, can you recall the first thing you first person you spoke to in the media about the ideology
1: oh wow that's a good question i don't i don't know if i've been asked that before i would say it was probably in the early it would be it would have been in the early 90s in the early 1990s um 93 somewhere somewhere around that around that time i can't remember the exact like tv station or or anything uh to that effect there was there was a lot there was a lot of coverage from starting in the early 90s and going forward at least my time involved in it
0: what do you recall of those particular earlier interactions um because uh that people learn to engage with whether it be the media or, or whoever in a particular context in a particular framework. What do you recall of that?
1: Well, there's one there's one particular incident that um, that really sticks out. If I look back on my interactions with the media, and this was this was also in the it would have been in the early 90s or around 93 or around that uh, 94 at the latest. But I had went on a, a radio show, and at that point, I wasn't using. I was not the leader of the National Socialist Movement at that point. I was just a, a local, local organizer, and I was in the radio station with the former leader of the NSM at that point. And at that time, I was using a fake name. I was uh, because my last name, uh, Scoop, is not very common, um, and I didn't want my family to be targeted by people that didn't agree with with the movement. So I was going into this interview, and I had explained to the, you know, the radio show host, I said my name is Jeff Stevens, which of course my name is not Jeff Stevens; it's Jeff Scoop. But um, I was was trying to protect my family at the time, and I used was using Stevens as a fake last name. During that interview, and I'll never forget this, uh, but during that interview, I had said some things on the air that the the radio show host didn't like, um, and there was people calling in that were supportive, and she didn't like that, and she was getting more antagonized and more angry as, as the show was going along, and at some point during that show, she got so angry with me, she like slammed her hand down, and she says, your name is not Jeff Stevens. It's Jeff Scoop. She spelled out my name on the air, you know, S-C-H-O-E-P. And I know, you know, your mother is a German immigrant. Your father lives in this town, works at this, you know, basically before the word doxing uh, was being used, she basically doxed my family on the air and said she was going to call my mother at work during during this uh, morning radio show and you know, basically call in. And this was one of those, one of those things you look back and I don't blame anybody else for the choices that I made over the years, but someone had asked me this uh, once before they said, you know, early in your career in the movement, what if something like that didn't happen? Because when that happened, you know, first first thought in my mind at the time was defense of the family because i knew that people could be you know targeting my family after that and basically i said on the air that i don't have any connection with my family they don't love me they you know i was just trying to do damage control i didn't know how this woman knew my name it was very uh very disturbing and so i think she had it planned out in advance and um tried to cause a lot of problems for my family and that the reverberations and and uh, what took place after that, and um, you know, it's, it, there's some things I really don't want to talk about, um, you know, on the air. But uh, my family definitely paid a price for my involvement in in this movement. But uh, to to summarize that, what I what I was going to say on that was, her doxing my name on the air and, and doing that, it didn't deter me like they, a lot of people think, you know, if you do stuff, if you dox people, if you, um, you know, target their families or things like that, they're going to, uh, back down for me. When the things like that happened, I doubled down on, on my activities. I got more active. I got at that point, I was like, well, they know people know my name now. I might as well put it out there. And, um, it was 27, 27 years total or about 20, Five twenty-six 26 years after that happened that I ended up staying in.
0: That is, it's an interesting sort of incident. Um, when did, after it, uh, did you do much media after that? Or did you, was the, um, did you sort of ease off engaging with the media for a little while after that incident?
1: I don't think so. I mean, that was pretty shocking, but um, we were doing a lot of things at that time that were pretty provocative, like marching around in the local neighborhoods with swastika flags and uniforms and and things like that. So I don't think it it uh, it deterred me at all. It just made me really, really um, angry and um, it, it caused a lot of damage to my family. Okay. which had the no, family had nothing to do with my choices. They were actually, they uh, had been against it from the get go.
0: If we take, um, that, we take that incident and look at the sort of the activism that, um, drew, drew attention. What were the things that you did publicly that you knew would always get attention from the media?
1: Back in the early days, like around that same time period, we had done things like um, the former leader of the organization showed me what he called the one-man picket or the one-man demonstration, and he said, you know, we're going to go to downtown Minneapolis. We're going to, he says, I'm going to be in uniform with the flag and a a picket sign. or was one or the other, and um, I'm going to stand in front of this federal building and, and do a one-man picket i said why are you doing a one-man picket there's three of us here he says because i'm going to show you this is how it's done this is this is how it's done and um that was the start of how we how we were learning how to you know get the attention of the media and things like that so um that particular incident i don't believe made the news but there was one uh soon thereafter where we went to the at the state capitol there was hearings about um I think it was American Indian rights or something at the time, and, so, and and maybe a gay rights legislation. So we were showing up at those things uh, to oppose them, and basically just standing in the state capitol in the hearings with the arm, you know, a swastika armband on or in in uniform, and that got uh, media attention. That was a guaranteed media attention there. And then in South St. Paul, we were doing walking pickets with the swastika flag and and things like that and marching around with the you know group of people that we had at the time and most of the time that was making not every time but that was making um media and press things like that at the time that was or that was in the 90s did
0: the did movements like the nsm also do sort of placards posters and flyers and that kind of thing did flyer did flyer campaigns get much in the way of attention or were they simply dismissed
1: no the the flyer campaigns and the leafleting campaigns uh often not always they didn't always make the news but quite often they did and we learned how to how to, again, manipulate the press. And I I want to backtrack just a moment because there was one more thing that I was thinking of when that particular radio show, where I said earlier that people were calling in and expressing that they, you know, were in support of us. Some of those people were, were people that we knew others were just random listeners from around the area, but some of them were people that we knew and we knew how the radio, uh, talk show hosts were going to screen calls. So they would screen calls of the people coming in and they said, well, why do you want to get on the air? You know, the call screener is doing this. Why do you want to get on the air? And we would tell our people, tell them that you want to give the Nazis a piece of your mind, you know, and that you're angry and you want to give these guys heck, you know? So the screener thinks it's somebody that's against us that's calling in. And the moment they patch the call through to the person running the, you know, the, the host, then the person gets on the air, it's live and they said, "Hey, you know, how where's your website or or how can I get in touch with you guys? I'm a supporter. I'm I'm you know, want to join. How do I do this?" So this kind of thing was happening too, which was really getting under this uh, talk show host skin because people were calling in and and she wasn't having a lot of callers that were that were angry with us. In fact, they were calling in in support of us. And some of that was our own doing, you know, of having, you know, learning to do these uh, tricks, I guess you could say, or these uh, tactics to manipulate the media. So back uh, to your more, uh, the question on the flyers. So what we did on the flyers was something similar to this. So if, the, if we hit a neighborhood in the suburbs of Minneapolis or Minneapolis, St. Paul, wherever um, at the time, we would make phone calls and pretend to be um, an angry person from that neighborhood. So we'd have one of the females call up and say, I live on 22nd street and this national socialist movement, put a flyer on my car. Why aren't you guys covering this? This hate group is in our, our area and we're tired of it. We're, our neighbors are mad. We've got kids at home that are angry, you know, this sort of thing. So we'd have called people calling in pretending to be angry residents and then the reporters are trying to do their due diligence and say well you know we, we would like your comment comment on the story can we come out and talk to you no i'm afraid i'm afraid to, to speak because of retribution from the organization i this is an anonymous call i don't want to have nothing to do with that um you know and and that would be it, we wouldn't have the same person doing it. we have different people doing it so it would seem like a neighborhood's outraged and now all of a sudden the media is covering a story because we back then twisted twisted the narrative and got the attention
0: the what you've said is in what you've said is particularly enlightening in the sense that um when talk back radio began or talk radio when in the states it provided people with the opportunity to communicate more broadly and engage. That opportunity is, shall we say, ag- agnostic. People can be, it, the opportunity is open to anybody. It's, but movements like the NSM appear from what you've said to use it effectively.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one thing the the NSM was uh, incredibly, I mean, my skill set, um, I don't want to say we were good at it, because there's nothing good about uh, having been involved in this stuff, but uh, very good with propaganda for everything from music to videos to podcasts, later on podcasts, phone hotline uh, messages, uh, starting in the 90s up until I'm sure currently. Um you know, video games later on, um, anything you could think of, bands, you know, parroting the music, any any kind of uh, propaganda, magazines, newsletters. Um, some of the other groups had newspapers back in those days, and we would, we would get uh, bulk order the newspapers, and then stick our flyers in them and, and pass the, you know, throw those into neighborhood yards and things like that. So it was, and then of course, the internet when that, we were early on in the internet, um, one of the earlier organizations that had a uh, website. So we were pretty uh, on top of a lot of those different things, unfortunately uh, got pretty good at it.
0: Now, one of the other issues is is, is branding. Um, what, what role did sort of uniforms and, and dress have in the organisation, in terms of branding, in terms of drawing attention to what it was doing,
1: branding was very important as far as <clears throat> symbolism. Um, looking for on the street activism, it wasn't as as controlled in the earlier days, but later on, it got uh, it got more um, tighter or more uh, concise. So the uniforms, the the look. Um, symbolism all that sort of thing was very important because uh you know with branding people know that look they know the you know they know the organization symbols the organization's flags Um so that was a that was a big deal so the the branding and the public perception and um there was a couple of changes over the years in that in 2000 2008 Uh, there was a branding change that was done where the organization going back to George Lincoln Rockwell and the original American Nazi party they wore that brown shirt uniform the old school uh, like the German stormtroopers did and over the years people were saying were saying to me and saying at events you know like hey I would like to join or I want to be involved in this but I'm not German and it was something that we kept hearing over and over and over again and and I kept thinking, well, why? Why do people think we have you have to be German to be involved in this? Um, if there's so many that believe that this is, we're doing something wrong with the branding. We shouldn't be using these old uniforms. So in 2008, rebranded to all black battle dress uniforms (BDUs). So that was one thing in the branding. Then we stopped using the German flags and things like that used specifically nSM symbols with the red white and blue uh, of the American flags and um, at that time we were still using the swastika in 2016 the swastika was replaced with a odal rune and um, in another rebranding attempt there in in 2016 yeah uh,
0: one of the Interesting elements in this is when you're engaged in street activism. Um, uh, there are groups that that argue that you need to keep yourself um hidden, you need to mask up, you need to keep your identity hidden. When you do a a rebrand of a uniform and you're looking at uh sort of mass recruitment and whatever else, it, it looks impressive from a um from a visual standpoint, which is probably what you're, you were aiming at, with but, but black, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But what does that do from the point of view of getting attention from you know, the friends in law enforcement?
1: <laughs> well, I guess it definitely got a lot of law enforcement attention, um, everything from, you know, being raided um, by the authorities to, um, leaders of the organization getting knocks at the doors from, you know, different law enforcement agencies and things like that. Um, and of course, because, you know, we weren't hiding our faces, we were open, um, you know, when the doxing and things like that started, a lot of people, and, and just in general, with people getting recognized or people doing demonstrations in their local areas, got recognized but especially the spokespeople the ones that were you know giving speeches or talking to the media and stuff like that they were um the more high profile you were the more more high profile more problems um as far as that goes uh so but yes you know having having that disciplined organized look was important um you know for for the public's perception and one thing that i had noticed and uh Early on, is um, I'd watched a program on uh, I think it was on HBO or or something, but it was on it was a program that was covering a movement group, and this was in the nineties, and it showed this small group of them. There might have been twelve guys in marching, but it looked like from the overhead aerial view and and seeing these guys march, it looked like they had two dozen. I couldn't figure that at first. I'm looking at I go, why does it look like they have twice as many guys? as they as they do why is that why am i seeing that visually and what was noticeable was most of those guys or all of those guys were carrying flags so because they had poles and flags and the way the the media's eye or the camera's eye is uh, looking at this it looks like double the numbers so that uh, from that day going forward we made sure to have more flags and more poles because we wanted to look larger and more, um, imposing than we even were.
0: One of the, um, uh, I guess if we can touch on your relationship with the media, when you, uh, when you pulled the pulled the plug, left the movement in 2019, what was the, what was the shift like between, uh, after 27 years in the movement and then, you engaging with the media when you were ready to engage late in 2019, if I remember rightly.
1: Yeah, it was in. I started talking to the media again, and like it was August or September of 2019, after leaving in early March of 2019. So that was it. Was huh, interesting, I guess you could say it was. It was. Um, it, everybody has different opinions you know so some some reporters were really supportive i had run into or had talks with some that had covered me before that still had my phone number and, and reached out and were like, oh wow what you're doing now is incredible and and uh, some were very supportive and then there's other people that are you know not so much now but at first that were kind of skeptical you know maybe they didn't believe me um or, or were skeptical or would ask different people that didn't know me or didn't know about the work that I was doing, you know, what do you think about this guy? And, and um, you know, there's people that after being in the movement for 27 years, I understand it. It's frustrating, of course, but I understand it, and and um, it's reasonable to uh, question anyone, I guess. You know that a- after so long, changes their their viewpoints and things like that. But um, a colleague uh, in, in academia had said to me once. He says, "You know, I'm not going to ask you any questions about uh, what you stand for now, or or excuse me that." are you the same as before do you believe in the same things he says because nobody questioned you when you were a nazi and you spoke and believed in it no one questioned that so why now would anybody question what you say so it's how is it okay to believe you before but now not believe you it doesn't make sense and i thought that's an interesting way of looking at it but uh, i i like that because he was right nobody was questioning my beliefs that I, i mean my beliefs were wrong but the sincerity of where I I stood before no one was questioning that. So how would they question it now? I thought that was, that was interesting psychologically.
0: It it is an interesting point you make in terms of transition, what the perception is um, and how people grapple with that and how you, you, as far as I can tell from the material I've read so far, how you try to, how you then build, a presence that indicates a progression, um, which is an interesting process. Back to the media more generally. We have a debate here from time to time about uh, whether you platform extremists to what you do in covering extremist activity. Based on your experience, which is um, considerable, um, what do you believe is the best approach for people to take when they're confronted with a news story that deals with um, extremist activity?
1: It's a really good question, and it's and it's a, a difficult one because I know that the media here, Australia, and, and across the world, they, a lot of people struggle with that on what is the right answer to that. And I can say um, with, you know, coming from my experience that um, I can, I can give a few examples, but one, one thing on the more extreme end. Okay. So when you have an extremist that's going out and doing mass shootings, like the guy in um, New Zealand, and I'm not even going to name him and I'm going to explain why. Um, and other instances here in the United States and Pittsburgh and a number of other places where people walked into synagogues, mosques, churches and started pulling the trigger. There are elements, the most extreme elements of the far right um, movement that uphold these people as martyrs or heroes, or that they've sacrificed, you know, to uh, for a greater cause. And the idea uh, behind these thinkers and the, and the people that think like them and support them is that they do these actions in hopes of triggering something. I mean, this even goes back to like Charlie Manson. And, and and his people where they were trying to start a race war. They were trying to kick off a race war. Um, this is what these people are, are attempting to do by doing those actions. They don't think that that one action is going to win the war per se, but they're doing that to get the attention to make martyrs of themselves um, or they believe that they're gonna be a martyr um, similar to the like Islamic extremists that are doing things mm-hmm. like that but the difference is it typically with the Islamic extremists they have no problem with sacrificing their life with the white supremacist or far right extremists or far left that are not of that religious ideology those extremists tend to sometimes they they are killed in these actions but but more more often they're not because they have this belief that that uh, one day, these groups are going to come to power. They're going to be let out, you know, that, that sort of thing, but they're trying to build up that reputation. So the first bit of advice, I guess I would have for the media would be don't name them. You can, I mean, obviously it's news. You have to cover those stories about what those tragedies, but don't name them. And specifically, you could even say like, we are not giving this person a platform we're not going to give their movement a platform don't name them um that would be my advice there and i know there's probably ethical um concerns uh that different departments or different governments might have on that but i think that would be an easy step in the right direction is just to simply not name that individual make uh, uh don't don't no, give no,
0: them- not even not so even when an individual goes to court uh they're in front of a courtroom um uh, you would argue that in front of a, just testing the theory in in a public in, in a public sort of forum like a court where they're being tried and then uh, found guilty of doing what they've done, you would argue that they during the legal process uh, their name shouldn't be used, would you?
1: you? See, that's that's a complexity. I mean, it's it, on one hand you you want to say, okay, well. I, I guess you, you wouldn't have to name him there either, him or her, but you could say the individual that did this terror attack or whatever it was, was sentenced okay. to 50 years. I, I think it's, it's tough. It's tough.
0: It's oh, a, tough it's t- it's, a, it's a, it's a <clears throat> difficult issue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and one where uh, I've, I've observed it here. And when I've written copy on, the uh, Christchurch, uh, I've actually asked editors, do you want me to include the name of the individual? Do you want me to leave it out? Or do you want me to name a certain telegram channel or leave it out? Do you want me to obscure it? Just say it's a far right channel. Do you, what did you want me to do? How? Do you, what approach did you want me to have? Um uh, so not naming extremists in that in in a general sense is where you would go. What's the next thing? Because we've got to cover, we've got to cover the the events and so not giving them martyr status is one element of it. Yeah. But that doesn't deal with the entire problem. It just means that you're um sidestepping naming someone that is probably doing it for the one the attention and two uh, you're right the acceleration uh, seeking to accelerate a conflict
1: yes which yes. is where
0: which is where groups like Adam Waffen division and base um and a range of others that operate across europe are at yeah
1: exactly now, with the other organizations that uh, tend to stay political, legal for the most part, and things like that, organization like I was a part of the National Socialist Movement, and you know I keep naming it um, just for posterity's sake. But one one way of looking at that for those type of organizations, um, you could go back to that and not name them and just say a far right or extremist group was out there. I I know if I put myself back in the seat of where I was in the past in the NSM had the media covered us and not named us and you didn't see the NSM flags with the the name on them or, or things like that. It would have been a fail because um, if people didn't know who we were to look us up on the internet or write us or, or call us, um, it would have been more difficult. And and people's and this goes back to propaganda, but people's attention span, especially in this day and age with social media and instant news at your fingertips and all that, people's attention spans are very short. So if if they've got to spend 15 minutes to try to figure out well what group was this that had a march in Dallas today or in Uh, Las Vegas or wherever they're not they're going to forget about it and they're not going to look it up so that's one quick little thing uh, that might help but another thing and I think this is kind of important too and I think a lot of the listenership uh, uh, might find this interesting as well Um, uh, Tom on the last program did I mention about the the rally where no media showed up or or should I talk about that
0: um I think no I don't think we covered that um on the record so have a have a have a stab at that one because that's an interesting story.
1: Yeah, it was uh it was really interesting. And this was actually in I believe it was in Biloxi, in Biloxi, Mississippi. Um maybe I got the city wrong, but it was in Mississippi and um a few years ago, a few years back, and um it was NSM and the Ku Klux Klan rallying together, and there was almost no audience at that. There wasn't a lot of uh, press or any press. There was basically just a handful of people from the local area that were around there. Um, No counter protesters, no supporters, just basically almost an empty rally. And um, the reason I bring this story up is because the morale of the people that were there, both from NSM and the KKK was very low. It was like... People were saying, oh, this was the most boring rally that we've ever done. This was horrible. It was it was bad. And as the leader of the organization at the time, I'm thinking, oh, no, this is not good. If this gets around in the group or, or they you know, didn't enjoy this or didn't have a good time, this is going to hurt our numbers in the future is where I was thinking at the time that I was really worried about it. I was like, man, if... Uh, if this is if this is the future of rallies we're done because people won't show up so that i think psychologically um tells a lot about about uh where this stuff goes because it was only a a year or two before that where there was a big fight with uh antifa at a rally in new jersey and and uh turned into this big street street fight and um that sent the morale skyrocketing. There was people that missed it and said, I will never miss another rally again. I saw the video from fighting the Antifa. I'm gonna be there. I'm, I'm embarrassed that I wasn't there fighting with you guys, things like that. And there was comments coming from people after that Mississippi rally going, why couldn't this have been like New Jersey? I wish we could have gotten into a big fight again or, or things like that. And I have to explain that as well, that the NSM, uh, um, when I was there, was not allowed to strike or attack anyone in all those years. There was never anyone arrested at a rally because the regulations were very strict with the NSM where you could not hit someone and you could only fight in self-defense. So if you were attacked, then you, then you could fight, but the other side had to attack first. And uh, that's typically what happened. So when there would be uh violent clashes, it was instigated by the other side.
0: Hmm. It's an interesting one. I mean, it, 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 listening to your solutions or your the ways in which to to sort of minimise the, the growth um, also leads me to reflect on how you uh, how you report responsibly more broadly um, and get people to understand the consequences of going down that pathway. And, and I guess doing what we're doing now, having a dialogue with people who've been there is one way of doing it. Um, what, what, how important is the role of case studies, uh, in your view, to uh, trying to get people to think more deeply about you know, making sure they don't go down an extremist route? From
1: preventing it in, in the first place? Is that what you're asking? Correct. Oh, there, there's so many different things, but I believe that it really starts, with, prevent is more important, to, I think, even than, than getting people out. Getting people out is important as well, but if we can prevent people from getting in, then we don't have to tackle that issue later on in the future. So pr- to prevent, the best, the best policy, I believe, is starting young in the school systems and, and proper education, because a lot of what these extremist groups believe it's groupthink. it's a cult like mentality. It's, it becomes, it becomes your truth or your reality, even though it's not the truth, it becomes your truth. It becomes your reality, even though it's not what, you know, it's not reality, but that's how you start to think. And a lot of that is based on fear, fear of the unknown, misunderstandings, misinterpretations, not knowing or, um, the people that are around you or the different the different aspects of, of race and ethnicity and humanity and, and religion and all these sorts of things. So I think if we start young in the schools and we have programs, when I was in school, when I was in school, they had something called like international day or international festival or something like that. And it was one day of the year and it was a lot of fun, but it mainly focused on like, okay, well here's food samples from Germany. Here's food samples from Mexico. Here's food samples from this sort of thing. And it was a lot of fun, but it was just one day. Um, And I don't think that's enough. I think if we're starting uh, and we have a class in one week, you're studying Kenya, next week, you're studying France, you know, or next day, you can go through all these different things and cover the different religions and stuff, too. So people don't have all these stereotypes, or these um, fears or worries about the so called other, you know, they can't be othering people when they realize the other is just like them, just a little bit different.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the most significant lesson that you learn from looking at uh, looking at these issues is that you know people bleed and breed like each other um, and any differences are there to you know perpetuate either either an absence of understanding or, or a deliberate attempt by people to divide and conquer well, that's how absolutely. it seems
1: yeah absolutely.
0: Jeff, uh, I'm very mindful of, uh, of the time. You've been extremely generous again. Um, for that, I'm grateful. The, for people who didn't tune into the first one, um, where did I find your uh, the websites? You've got one for Beyond Barriers and you've got a personal one. Could you give those details again?
1: Yes, um, Beyond Barriers USA dot org is the is the nonprofit organization that we uh operate that helps people to get out of extremism and we uh help the help educate the public and uh, and speak out and and do good work and peace building and my personal website is jeffscoop.com that's j-e-f-f-s-c-h-o-e-p.com um, those are our websites and and uh, encourage people to to reach out and get in touch with us
0: and it's been great to talk to you again a second time. Uh, hopefully we'll get to do this uh, again a third or a fourth and it's fifth. And um, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk about your experiences and, and some of the things media could do better.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolute pleasure.